In part two of our conversation, Jan Swafford talks more about his four guys, Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, and Ives. And we also continue to talk about writing. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to leave a review. Well, just getting to your writing now as, a, as an actual writer, do you, do you have, for your four books, did you have the same editor or different editors? Or oh, do no, you work four with an different editor? publishers and editors. And editors, okay. Um, how important is the, is the work of an editor with your book? And, and were these four editors radically different? Yes. Mostly, I didn't get that much editing until the Mozart. And that, he's the best editor I ever had because he did a certain amount of editing, actual editing, which, not constant, but it was, he was just very astute. But meanwhile, I have, I have a friend, Raphael Atlas, who was a longtime musicologist at Smith, who read the book, The Mozart. And besides checking facts and questioning, questioning ideas and things like that, he did a lot of good at editing, too. The Mozart really was well edited compared to my other books, or maybe my other books just didn't need them. I don't know. Most of what editors have done is just try to get me to cut stuff to shorten the book. And, and I, you know, I take their advice about half the time on that. But you tend to do that yourself anyway, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, but I don't tend to cut whole paragraphs or pages or, or two pages and things like that. And that's, those are the kind of cuts that my editors often suggest. And sometimes I agree. One of the basic problems with biography is that when you know something, it tends to go in the book, even if it, even if it doesn't really need to be there. And I'm a, I'm, if I have a good story at hand, even if it's not all that relevant to the, to the narrative flow of the biography, I will tend to put that story in because I can't resist a good story. I was just thinking about this the other day. I was doing everything. Mozart, his early travels that made him famous when he was six, seven years old, traveling around Europe, he would go in one place and play, and his sister would play, who was also a prodigy, and, and everybody would be astounded, and they'd go in the next place, and everybody would be astounded. I would just say, I, I don't know how to write about this because it's dull. And so I, I did end up cutting a fair amount of that, and the editor cut some more, but still I, I used every every bit of color I could find. They played for one, they were in the town and the guy, the, the monarch, I can't remember where this was, they had to get to, to get some some money, uh, was a guy who was apparently absolute crazy, it was just crazy. But in a kind of delightful way, he would go down and catch fish and then sell fish at the fish market alongside the, the fish bar, he would drag people into his rooms to admire the contents of his chamber pot. I mean, that just, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't not tell that Yeah, story. exactly. Yeah. But also I needed anything I could get to make some variety and, and interest in those, uh, in those travels with Mozart, because I just said this is going to be, end up tedious and people would just lose track of where he is and not care, so... One thing that's great about all the books, I think, is is it's just not the biography of this great composer, but it's a biography of the time too, and what it was what it was really like to to live in the times. Well, because of what they write has everything to do with their their situation. Beethoven was more independent of his situation than almost anybody, I think. Uh, any of them. Um, I mean, he hated Vienna and the Viennese, but he lived there for twenty five yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not many people who could do something like that. But 
You know, I think that the romantic response to Beethoven affected him. I don't, I, I'm not going to say exactly how, because I don't know, but I think it did. Um, his relationship to his patrons affected him and had something to do with what he wrote and when. Uh, you come out of a time, and of course it affects you. Um, so to understand, a, to, I, I've never looked at music, and this is something I know as a composer. When I was when I was in graduate school, a lot of composers were writing in the style of abstract expressionism, you know, in the style of 12-tone music, in the style of Schoenberg and Weber. And I just thought that was ridiculous, because Schoenberg and Weber came out of Vienna at a particular time in its history, and that's that's the reason they ended up writing the way they was not just in other words it was music was looked at presented and presented in school as a techni purely technical feat. If you learn how to write music in twelve tone style like like Webern, then that's all you need to know. You do it, and that's and but it's not because Webern came out of a particular time and place. So I knew already that composers come out of a time and place, and that's partly partly the reason they turn out the way they did. And as I say in the Beethoven book, if Beethoven, a lot of Beethoven is explained by being born in Bonn and the way Bonn was. If he had been born in Cologne, which was a very conservative town and very kind of backward in some ways, Bonn and, and Cologne were part of the same, under the same ruler, but they hated each other for centuries. <laughs> Uh, if, if Beethoven had come from Cologne, he would have been, had been a different composer. He, he might have been just as great, but he would have been different. So to understand a composer's music, you need to understand their time. And also to understand sometimes the pressures on them. Uh, you have to know where they make their money. Who, how, how, how do they pay the rent? And with whom? And what's their relationship to that person? Uh, in the same way, you know, letters... I realized this, especially working on the Brahms, his letters with Clara Schumann, the great love of his life. When you read somebody's letter to somebody, you have to know who that other person is. You have to know what their rela the relationship between the two is, but you also have to know what's the relationship at that moment. Right, right. And it's and that's, you know, by putting together events in a person's life and some, what they wrote in a letter, you understand things. In terms of that, then, how much time, if you can say this, for for each book would you say let's say percentage-wise, would you spend researching versus writing? Is the great majority of time re researching then you write, or 50-50, or...? It's different with every book, because the, the material of Beethoven is so, was so overwhelming that the research just went on for years before I could begin to write. And, and you know, with the, with the Ives and the Brahms, I had sort of done all my research before I started writing, so I said, that's what you do. You do all the research and you don't write at all. You may do sketches or something. But Beethoven, you know, as I say, my Ives bookshelf is about, my Ives library is about one and a half bookshelves at the time. My Brahms library was about two and a half bookshelves. My Beethoven library was the better part of two bookcases. Wow. The Mozart was one small bookcase. And, all of, and you read all of those books? Uh, well, they weren't all all about Beethoven. Some of them were European history. I might just browse something. But, but Beethoven and Beethoven related. But yeah, I read about 200 books and many, many articles. And Beethoven was the only one where I said, I can't begin to cover all the literature. I just have to, I just have to draw a line. And that was, and where's that line? And you don't know. So you just sort of, at a certain point, say, I've got to get the book written. Yeah. <laughs> it's five years late. You're talking about cutting. It's like William Faulkner saying, there's a great quote from Faulkner saying, you have to kill all your darlings. You have to learn to kill your darlings. He didn't actually, 
That's that's one of Faulkner's most famous things, though he didn't invent it. But it's one of the most important things a writer ever said. And and the kill your darlings means the the great phrase or whatever it is, your favorite story that just doesn't belong. And I first heard that quote of a Faulkner from from Ingmar Bergman, a book about Bergman editing his huh. movie Winter Light. And there was a shot. He was that his favorite shot in the movie. He was in the editing process. Bergman was trying to get this shot, and he put it here. He put it there. And he suddenly said, "You know, Faulkner said you've got to learn to kill your darlings. This shot is huh. not going to work. I got to get rid of it." And I, that's one of the hardest things to do with Ryder. Now, I'll paraphrase Hemingway, one of the other famous lines from a writer. I'll uh, make it a G-rated. He said, "What every writer needs is a built-in shockproof crap detector." <laughs> okay. And knowing one of your stuff is crap is um, one of the. I mean, when when I read that of Hemingway, I said, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." I mean, how can a great writer? And it's, it's, it's so often happens, you realize there's somebody really quite, quite wise and profound about that because knowing one of your own stuff is good and bad is one of the great tricks for any artist. That's really hard. But what Hemingway would, of course, knew was that nobody's crap detector is perfect. Yeah. Everybody's is flawed. Um, maybe Mozart's not so much. <laughs> Beethoven had a very, very good crap detector. It's just that if he could make some money on the crap, he'd put it out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically what he said, what, he, what a critic said. You know, how could Beethoven have written Wellington's victory? Did, did that make him a lot of money, or some money, at least? It probably made him a lot of money. It was, it was premiered in the same concert with the Seventh Symphony, and the Seventh went over very well. It was maybe the biggest immediate success of any of his symphonies. But Wellington's victory was an even bigger success. And what Beethoven wrote across that review of the critic is, what I blank is better than anything you ever did. <laughs> so he knew it was okay, crap. Yeah, yeah. But um, he, that's what it was supposed to be. He wrote it to be. He wrote it to be a crowd-pleasing, you know, thing that would make him some money. He knew the the, the um, Oratorio Christus was pretty bad, but he went to a certain amount of trouble to get it performed and, and published and did some revisions to try to improve it. So that was his particular thing. Mozart didn't write crap. He just wrote a certain amount of routine stuff. And I, you know, and I don't think it bothered him one way or the other. He didn't, you know, as Brahms said, he can just write and go out to the tavern and enjoy life. And I had Brahms said Mozart could do that. I can't. The thing that was interesting to me about the Mozart book was, as Mozart got, got older, it seemed like he was willing to struggle with yeah. some of his writing and spend more time on it. Whereas at the beginning, what, what was the quote? I, I composed like a Sal Piddles. Or something like that? I mean, he said that when he was maybe eight years old. But, oh, know. okay. I didn't realize he was that young when he said that. But just that it, it just <laughs> it was true. It was true then. It was, it was true later. I think it's his encounter with Haydn, personally, and, and his music, the Mozart. When he, wrote, he, he struggled more with the, what we call the Haydn Quartets, the six dedicated to Haydn, who was a friend of his by that point. He struggled with that probably more than anything he'd ever written. And it's because he knew he had to live up to Haydn, who, invent, who invented the modern string quartet. And um, he had never felt challenged like that before, but he was... So writing did get slower and harder for him, though he was still extraordinarily fast. And in the same way, Beethoven mostly wrote very fast. I mean, that's another thing that he struggled over every note. It's not true. He wrote extremely fast. But when things weren't going well, you know, he, he did whatever it took 
even if it took a lot of struggle to get it done, especially if he was writing counterpoint, because Beethoven did not write counterpoint easily. He was not a natural counterpuntalist, so therefore he wrote a lot of counterpoint. As he said at one point, what is hard is good. That's, I think that's, you know, there's a, um, there are several YouTube videos from John Cleese, the comedian, about creativity. Oh, yeah. And this really sh- surprised me when, when I heard him say one of the things that he thought was very important is he said, creative people struggle with a problem longer, not shorter. And I had always thought, well, if you're creative, you solve the problem right away. But he said, creative people are willing to struggle longer with the, the problem and not use just sort of a standard escape route that they use, but they really try and find the right answer and they're willing to take the extra time. And I think Cleese is right, though my version of that would be that there's not always something wrong with it. You know, Mm. Beethoven wrote the Uh violin concerto, probably the greatest of all violin concertos, and he couldn't have spent a month on it. He may have written in two weeks. That's amazing. It just went well. But the thing is knowing when what you've got is not there yet, that's the critical thing. And then you do whatever it takes to get it there. And Beethoven would take any amount of trouble and time to get something right if it wasn't coming out right. Most of the time it came out right pretty quickly, but that's all. Also, people look at, you know, maybe Beethoven wrote 10 sketches for this theme. Yeah, they're there, they're in the sketches, but he may have wrote those 10 sketches in 20 minutes. And so again, there, there's this, the myths tend to grow up. It is true that, that the greatest people take infinite pains, but it's also true that some people are more fluent than others. Mozart was tremendously fluent. Um, he did more sketching than people realize because he didn't keep, his wife didn't keep the sketches. Apparently she threw a lot of them out because she thought they weren't important. But he did a lot more sketching than people realize, but he was still extraordinarily fluent. And Bach was extraordinarily fluent. He couldn't have written as much as he did. Oh, yeah, Cantata a week is amazing. Yeah, I know. And, and Beethoven didn't have that kind of fluency, and neither did Haydn. And um, um, it partly just depends on who you are and, and, and the ability to know when something is good and when it's not, and to go to the trouble to make something bad into something good is 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 ultimately what it amounts to and how long that takes and what a struggle it is and how much it takes out of you is very individual. So I'm wondering if, if you could read just the last section from your Brahms book, the last three paragraphs, starting with Leaning on the Wall. Yeah. I'll set this up this way. One of my main sources was a four-volume um biography by Max Kalbeck, who knew Brahms, um, in German. And in fact, in um, Gothic text, German, old-fashioned print. And it's never been translated into English because as a biography, it's just a rambling mess. But it's got a lot of great information because Kalbeck knew Brahms. And Kalbeck was at a concert with Brahms about two weeks before Brahms died. Actually, it wasn't a concert. It was a rehearsal of a, a a chamber group, and Brahms had to walk home. Brahms was dying uh, of uh, liver cancer, very weak. So he's struggling to go home, and Kalbeck is sort of holding him up to get back home, even though it's just a very short distance from where the rehearsal was. And this is based on what Kalbeck remembered of that moment. 
Leaning on the wall, looking out at the cathedral, the Karlskirche, Brahms spoke of the Thirty Years' War and the destruction it wrought on German culture. Yet eventually, for all its divisions of kingdoms and of spirits, that culture had created a domain of imagination filled with fairy tales and folk songs and sorcerers and doppelgangers and magnificent music, all shaping a myth of another world more wondrous and eternal and perilous than this one, and name that world romantic. With Max Kalbeck watchfully alongside, Brahms began to shuffle forward, pausing every few steps to rest, and so made his way across the plaza, past the church, to Karlsgasse. At the corner, his future biographer offered him his arm again. Brahms brushed it away. I can make it up quite well by myself. You go on now. I need to lie down. Well, ade. Kalbeck understood. Brahms was afraid that if his young protege accompanied him up to his rooms, he would sit and visit, and the ailing man was embarrassed by his exhaustion. Trembling, Brahms turned away down the street. Kalbeck stood beside the church and watched him disappear alone through the dark doorway. And that is on page 636, the last page of your book on Brahms. So we've had this incredible journey of this life, and, and you feel like you know this man, and just this beautiful ending of this book. And the last sentence is, to me, it it's just descriptive, but it, there's so much behind it. And and I, so I looked up uh, and found the last sentence of A Farewell to Arms, because it remind, reminded me so much of A Farewell to Arms, um, which was, uh, in that story, uh, essentially, it's Hemingway, I think, the, the main uh, uh, person of the novel, protege of the novel, uh, his wife has just died uh, giving childbirth. And this I don't is, think it's his wife. I think it's his girlfriend, yeah. His, yeah, girlfriend, yeah, exactly. And and all this emotional upheaval of the entire uh, book, which takes place during World War One. And this last sentence is, after a while I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. Just simple. Yeah. But but when I, I read that last sentence of yours, it really reminded me of that, of saying so much with just a descriptive phrase. And I think that was great. And I remember writing that line. It was one of those cases, like the end of the eyes book was the same. It just, it was just, at the moment, that's what hit hit me when I got there. It was absolutely inspiration. And I was, I was in tears with that line. <laughs> really? I wow. still get, I still choke up with that line. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's not funny at all. I mean, it's interesting how it works, but yeah, that's, that's, I was wondering if you, if you felt that way about it or if that was just. No, in the dark doorway is death. And, yeah, um, yeah, of course. But it's also very physical. And, you know, as, as um, I think Camus said about Melville, <laughs> this is getting fairly far afield. <laughs> okay. That his, his metaphors, his great metaphors, all come right out of reality, concrete reality. And there's, there's a case of that. And I, you know, I write books with facts. I mean, to me, history and biography is about fact. Not, and I don't, I don't interpret, I, I have to be dragged screaming to an interpretation. And mostly what appear to be interpretations are very simple 
observations of things that are just seem to me very clear. I'm not trying to do fans. I don't think a I don't think a person lives their life in order to be interpreted by other people for money. I have a kind of moral feeling about that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I write with facts, and there's an example of it. He walked through a door. And I think facts can be quite eloquent if you present them right. Of course, facts are imperfect, true. You know, I think you're out for truth and fact and knowing you'll never get there, but I have no respect for anybody who isn't in writing history of any kind that's not struggling for absolute objective truth and fact, even though we know we can't reach it. Reach it. It's another, it's impossible, yet that's what we try, that's what we, that's our job, that's our business, that's our, our moral quest. Absolute truth and, and objective fact. And uh, just like as artists, we're all trying to be Shakespeare and Mozart, and we we don't get there, and we're pretty sure we never will get there, but try to do anything less than something better than what we are is just not that is, is not worth it it's not you know I, I can't remember who it was Mibben Faulkner said you've got to try to be better than you think you are yeah I think actually I think it was Steinbeck who said early in there's a I don't know if you've read this but he has a huge book of letters like about maybe 800 pages no. and yeah to me that's maybe the greatest writing he's ever done I mean it's just wonderful and he said, early on, I realized that I was not a great talent and I had two choices. And this is a paraphrasing. This is not an exact quote. But I had two choices. One was to stop writing and live a, a normal, happy life or keep writing and just try to exceed my talent with every book that I wrote. I think that's something every honest and decent artist understands eventually. And Beethoven did too. He, um, he wrote this amazing letter um, in the teens to this young girl who had written him and sent him a wallet or something that she had made. And he basically said, what I'm trying to do is, is always ahead of me like a distant sun and I can't reach it. Uh, and yet that's, again, I think every artist understands that, every honest artist, and it, with a drop of wisdom that you're never going to get what you're trying for. But you devote your life to getting as far as you can. And, this, and history is the same, and science is the same. And I, I, I've written about this, that I think the two great dangers are to give up the struggle for truth. It can be very dangerous not, not to strive for that in the appropriate situations. The other great danger is to think that you found ultimate truth. They're both dangerous. I mean, the, the idea of finding ultimate truth is religious fanatics and political fanatics and the people who, who like modern deconstructionists, postmodernists, who say we can't be objective, so there's no reason even to try. I have no respect for that point of view, and I think it's dangerous. Jan Swafford is not only a fantastic biographer, but a composer as well. And in the bonus room, we talk about this aspect of his creative life. <laughs> 